Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 50. Patterns of Force. Hello, people. Welcome to the most efficient podcast Earth has ever known. It's Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we look at a single episode of Star Trek and pick it apart to find the morals, meanings, and messages that lay within. This week, we visit the planet Echoes. It's got it bad for Germany in the 1940s, and that can't be good. It's Patterns of Force. Though, don't bother checking the Simplicity Catalog. You'll not find that pattern there. <laughs> I, I like the idea of a pattern of force. Pattern I, of I, force. I, think, I, I think if you look at my parents' closet from the 1970s, there were a lot of patterns of force on, uh, on those clothes. Now, yeah. wait, are we talking about you know, horribly garish uh, designs or are we talking oh, yeah, about yeah. something we don't want to talk about when we're talking about anybody's parents? No, we're talking about, you know, uh, plaid polyester pants. Oh, okay. I, I think that would be a, a pattern of force. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I did not want to have the other conversation. No, no, you did not. <laughs> Nor did I. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. I yeah, know nothing. I know nothing. It's, you know, <laughs> is it too soon today? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then, oh, my goodness, is it too soon in 1968? Yeah, I you know I took some notes about that that I think we'll we'll get to later in the show because I, I it's kind of like when we were talking about uh, gangsters on Star Trek like there's this weird you know uh, cultural pendulum that swings where at one point they're funny at one point they're scary uh, this was on the air at the same time as Hogan's Heroes yes and they were having fun with Nazis making yes. fun of Nazis. But, uh, yeah, it was very strange. Rest assured, and, though, Star Trek does not – I mean, this is not a Nazi comedy the way <laughs> – No. The way, uh, the way um, you know, with the gangsters. Uh, that, was, that was sort of a – that was a gangster comedy. This is that not was. a Nazi comedy episode of Star Trek. You have to go to Next Gen for that. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that didn't happen on Next Gen. But we haven't gotten there yet. So, you know, stay with us for a few years and we'll find out. No, but you can tell us if we're right or wrong about that uh, assumption about the no, funny Nazi episode next gen. Don't write us about that, please. But, <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. John was going to say you can write us about almost anything else. John? You can. And uh, you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. All your social media are belong to us at Mission Log Pod. Again, that handle is Mission Log Pod. Or you can call us on the telephone like they used to do. Three two three five two two five six four one. Again, that number is three two three five two two five six four one. You can email us missionlog at roddenberry.com, and you can also check us out on the web at www.missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments in an upcoming episode of Mission Log. You are so hip with the dub dub dub. You like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're like dub stepping. <laughs> right. Boy, that, that's a reference that won't be dated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good point. You know, uh, something that never goes out of style, though, because you're right. That, you're Ken? right. My, my, you know, my comments du jour may not make any sense, you know, three, five, seven minutes from now. Um, right. But what never goes out of style, John Champion, is trivia. 
Hey, well, since you mentioned it, I would love to share some trivia with you. Uh, we heard from a listener, Eli, uh, a few weeks before uh, recording this show, who wanted to point out that, of course, uh, both William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy are both Jewish. And here they are playing out in this kind of fantasy version of the Third Reich. Um, also wanted to point out that Leonard Nimoy performed in and produced a TV movie, which I believe came out in 1991, called Never Forget. And in that, he plays a Jew who uh, suffered during the war in the concentration camps and uh, ended up taking a group of Holocaust deniers to court and winning that court case. Uh, so very interesting uh, film there. Um, also wanted to mention that uh, Skip Homeyer, who played Melikon, also will appear later in Star Trek in a very different role in the season three episode, The Way to Eden. So uh, be sure you listen to that one. Um, now, this episode, Patterns of Force, was banned from German TV uh, when it first came out. Uh, this was released in 1968 originally. It did not play in Germany until uh, the 1990s on pay TV only, and then finally was broadcast uh, only in late 2011. Uh, so it took a very long time for this episode to make it to the German population at large. Gosh, uh, why? Yeah, well, yeah, who, who knows? Who knows? Um, a couple of things to point out uh, about this show. Uh, the character Inig, you might notice, is Gene spelled backwards. Yes, that was a little reference to Gene Roddenberry. Um, there's lots of stock footage used in this episode. To good purpose here, of course, there is a newsreel seen early on, and uh, there's a, a good amount of World War II vintage footage used during that. And uh, there are tons of studio buildings used here uh, from the Paramount lot uh, slash Desilu lot. And uh, by the way, did the underground tunnels used by the uh, Xeon Resistance, did they maybe look like they were carved out by a Horda to you, Ken? <laughs> I you because know they were were they wow yes. good so the yes. horde found work after that one episode yes <laughs> or at least the set builders uh, from Devil in the Dark uh, found their set reused uh, uh, so that tunnel indeed was a horde tunnel and uh, we also would like to point out to you the uh, discovered document that goes along with this episode we have a shooting schedule and uh, the thing that I liked looking at in this shooting schedule for patterns of four. So there, there are the notes in there that you would expect to see like wardrobe for Kirk and Spock. And then there are doubles, uh, who appear throughout and, uh, all kinds of interesting props like the, uh, the Lugers that are carried the broken apart communicators, uh, stuff like that, that I thought was pretty cool. And then the camera notes that you would expect to see like, tie down camera for uh, example for the scenes where anytime anybody's materialized they are beamed down to the planet you have to lock down the camera in order to get that effect to work correctly or uh, the bit where they superimpose the newsreel featuring John Gill that is a lockdown shot so you can of course fix that uh, that overlay with the effect in there um, and then uh, classically course there is a camera direction to shake camera when they are on the bridge if history has taught us anything it is this don't take a history class with john gill let's let john champion tell us why 
Prologue. The Enterprise is en route to Ecos, a planet where Earth historian John Gill has been hanging out, but no one seems to have heard from him. Ecos is relatively undeveloped, but as they approach, a rocket with a nuclear warhead approaches and explodes when the Enterprise phasers blow it up. Something is not right. Act 1. No word from John Gill, so Kirk and Spock decide to beam down to have a look around. They go for street clothes rather than their usual uniforms to try to blend in. Just in case, Dr. McCoy plants a transponder under the skin of both of them. If they get into trouble, at least they can be found. They beam down to Ecos, and it is a quaint, almost European replica of mid-20th century Earth. It might even be a nice place to stay if the Earth-like conditions didn't also include what seems to be a replica of Nazi Germany. They hide as they watch a young man, Isak, from the planet Zeon get harassed by uniformed Nazi thugs. Then, watching a newsreel broadcast, they see that the similarities of Nazi Germany are strikingly accurate, but in charge of it all seems to be John Gill, no longer a historian, but now in charge as the Fuhrer. Spock has caused a soldier to pass out using a Vulcan nerve pinch, and in short order, Kirk gets his own uniform as well. They are on their way to headquarters to get an audience with the Fuhrer himself and end whatever is going on here. The ruse is short-lived, though. A higher-ranking official sees Spock and asks him to take off his helmet. Even on Ecos, Vulcans don't look like they belong. Kirk and Spock are captured. Act 2. Kirk and Spock find themselves in a dungeon where they are being whipped and interrogated. Kirk just wants to talk to the Fuhrer. Chairman Eneg walks in to take over the interrogation and spots right away that Spock is not from Zeon. Kirk says he'll talk, but only to the Fuhrer. On top of all this, if it was bad enough when a hobo found McCoy's phaser last year or when 1920s gangsters got a hold of a communicator, now this new Reich has found the equipment Kirk and Spock beam down with and are trying to figure out what makes it tick. Stuck in their jail cell, Kirk and Spock are right next to Isak, who was taking a beating on the street when they beamed down. He explains that the Zeons were trying to civilize the Ecosians, but the Nazi movement started a few years ago. The Zeons are so peaceful they would rather die than engage in a fight, but the Nazis need a common enemy to give them purpose. Kirk starts to hatch a plan. They need to get back their original equipment in the SS lab, so they hatch a plan to remove the transponders from their bodies and use the light in their cell to form a crude laser. I'll let you all take a break for about ten minutes to imagine all the tense but comedic bumbling that follows. Are we good now? Okay, Uh, Kirk and Spock are out of their cell. They overpower a guard. Hey, another new uniform. And they take Isak with them, who will help them get back their equipment. The phasers are gone, but the communicators are in pieces. Isak urges his new friends to escape with him to the underground. It's not such a warm welcome. Isak introduces Kirk and Spock to Abram, who reveals the terrible news that Isak's fiancée was killed by Ecosians. Isak is still not driven to violence, lest they become like the Nazis themselves. While Spock gets to work on the communicators, a group of Ecosians break in, led by a woman, the same woman they saw in the newsreel earlier, to break up the party. Act 3. Kirk and Spock are still in their Nazi uniforms that they stole while trying to escape the prison, and they are being held at gunpoint by Daris, the young woman from the newsreel. She's overpowered by the two, but Isak stops them. This was a test. She's really one of them, working from the inside. Kirk reveals what's going on, who John Gill really is, 
and that something went wrong. Isak tells Kirk that the Fuhrer is never seen by anyone except Melikon, a high-ranking official. The Fuhrer does have a speech tonight, though, and the best chance of seeing him will be to infiltrate his building while posing as a film crew. When Spock peeks into the broadcast booth, he sees that John Gill is stiff and in a catatonic state. Kirk decides he'll need McCoy to help figure out what's going on, so they hide in a cloakroom to call the Enterprise and have him beam down. The Nazis are on to them, though. The reconstructed communicator that Spock repaired was working on a lower frequency, and they spotted the radio signal. Just after McCoy beams in, dresses a Nazi as well, the group are interrupted by Chairman Ineg. Act 4. Seeing Darris in the cloakroom, Ineg buys the story that this Nazi doctor is drunk and leaves them alone. When the speech begins, the crew are watching along with the other gathered officials, but Spock points out that Gill's mouth isn't moving, and the content of the speech just seems to be random sentences, probably pre-recorded. McCoy says he looks drugged, but he'll need a closer look. They all leave and overpower the guards who are stationed in front of the broadcast booth containing Gill. In the room outside, Melikon has already begun his speech, so no one notices what's going on with Gill once the curtains are closed. McCoy calls it, Gill has been drugged. At Kirk's urging, he administers a stimulant to Gill to bring him around. If we know one thing about McCoy, he's always ready to pump you full of stimulants. It's working, but not enough, and Spock initiates a mind meld. As they are listening to Melikon's speech, Darris asks Kirk to use the Enterprise's weapons to destroy the fleet of Ecosian ships that would be launched against Zeon. He's reluctant to take any more lives, and he points out that Zeon may survive, but what about Akos? After Spock's mind meld, Gill is in a state where he can answer questions. He explains to Kirk that the planet was in bad shape when he arrived. He thought that he could take a lesson from the efficiency of Nazi Germany and apply it in a benevolent way. Melikon took over, though, and perverted the system while keeping him drugged. At that moment, Eneg and his guards come into the broadcast booth, and Kirk decides to use Spock as a distraction, passing him off as a spy. Isak, in disguise as the Nazi, seconds this and quietly reveals to Kirk that Eneg is actually one of them. Melikon is having fun with this. He starts theorizing about Spock's relative purity and genetic inferiority. Back in the booth, Kirk is alone with Gill, and if you thought McCoy liked giving out stimulants, then Kirk takes this to a whole new level. There's injecting, and then for good measure, a few slaps to the face to bring him around. Once awake enough, Gill agrees to broadcast a call to stop the aggression and keep the Ecosian ships in place. He also names Melikon as the traitor. Melikon grabs a machine gun and fires directly toward the broadcast booth, killing Gill, but not before Gill can tell Kirk he was wrong. The Prime Directive really is a good policy. I sure hope Kirk learns from this. Darris and Ineg will take to the airwaves and start to repair the damage to their worlds. Time for our crew to beam back aboard, and even Spock says he thinks the Zeons and Ecosians, once they can work together, would make a fine addition to the Federation. Back in the captain's chair, Kirk explains to Spock where Gill went wrong, that the problem with the Nazis wasn't just that they were evil, but that the old axiom about absolute power holds true. The leader principle is what corrupted these people. And before a knockout war of words can erupt between McCoy and Spock, Kirk gives the order to leave orbit. The end. Sad you want to do this episode. 
<laughs> well, that's an interesting question, Ken. What do you mean? Well, I mean, uh, there's uh, – well, uh, never mind. We should actually do the lighter stuff first, and then maybe uh, maybe we'll start the next segment with that question. Okay. All right. Okay. Can I, can I go ahead and break the timeline like we yeah, always do? do um, yeah. Spock's examination of gambling and the exhilaration associated with the risk was very reminiscent of the conversation between Data and Picard as they march on the Borg in first contact. Oh, it just know, totally yeah. reminded me of that. The second the second he started doing that, wow, I'm sort of getting this whole gambling thing. Um, this is when Data has his uh, emotion chip, which I think he got in Generations, or they got it yeah. to work properly in Generations. Right. And right. so the next movie is First Contact, and he's you know walking around emoting all over the place. He's emo Data, not exactly, <laughs> but you get the idea. Yes, yes. And so they're you know they've got guns and they're going to fight the Borg, maybe die against the Borg. And while they're at the you know, the head of this like a group of uh, gunmen, mm-hmm. Data's all like, "Oh, Captain, this is really whoa! I'm feeling like ah, I'm kind of exhilarated. It's a little, I'm kind of frightened, <laughs> but it's kind of neat, you know, kind of like that whale falling towards Magrathia and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy." I said, <laughs> "Whoa, what's this? I'm mean, whoa, kind of crazy." And and you know, Picard's like, "Turn it off." <laughs> <laughs> Got it. It reminded me of that a little bit because because there's no reason that you know. Spock should be standing there going, hey, I'm kind of, whoa. Hey, this gambling is great. <laughs> yeah. The risk associated is kind of nutty. Although, you know, uh, Kirk actually encourages Spock, you know, saying, hey, we'll make a human of you yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, of yeah, course, yeah. gives Spock a chance to dig at humans. He, he's going to take him back to the Enterprise and open a casino, just so <laughs> he can explore this even more. Um, hey, I, you know, there's something just kind of from a production standpoint. Uh, the, the, the Ecosians as described earlier in the episode, were primitive and warlike before John Gill got there. That, that's just all that Starfleet really, or the Federation, knows about them. And the Zeons were advanced. Um, but I, what were they doing on each other's planets anyway? You know, they, we, we have gas-burning cars. We have these old-style movie cameras. Everything is just right out of, you know, whatever the studio had from the 1940s, which right. is obviously very clever from a production point of view. But I, I kind of wish that there had been a little tip to the higher technology that the Zeons had. Because it's kind of like the Zeons were there hiding out amongst them to, to fit in with this 1940s look. But they had spaceships. They had to get from their planet to this other planet. Well, you know? we have spaceships and gas-burning cars. Well, we do, yeah, but but we also have things like iPhones and computers and yeah, but we didn't advance things. I mean, we went no. to the moon in 1969. We went to the moon a year after this. So at that point, you know, the height of most of the technology that we have is color television. But we're also able to go from one body in space to another body in space. Now we haven't gone to another planet as people yet, but of course there are no people on Mars as far as we know. Sure, sure, sure. If there were, we might have maybe, you know, driven a little harder or we might be driving a little bit harder to get there. Yeah. Well it, it just it, it seemed a little weird to me that we're describing these things. We're saying like, oh yeah, they, they go from this planet all the time and we're about to launch a fleet to this other planet. But yeah. all we actually see is just what we know of late thirties, early forties Germany. Well, uh, you're you're leaving off the nuclear warhead that flew in space against the Enterprise. Uh, well, well, yeah, we we see that. Yeah, we have that that one. I, get, I mean, I get thing. I get what yeah. you're saying, but I mean, yeah. this sort of goes back to a couple of weeks ago with the private little war, um, which I think we might mm-hmm. hit on again later. But it sort of goes to that whole: did we get there at the time when they should have been going from bows and arrows to flintlocks? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I mean, because mm-hmm. we're I mean we 
the sixties especially, but you know, we are still sort of in uh, in a period of transition between what we you know what we have and theoretically what we can have. I guess you're always sure, that way sure. if you're a human, though. You know, unless you're like feeding yeah. ball or you know. <laughs> sucking up spores or something like that. Generally speaking, we're always, you know, sort of like uh, five minutes from the next big thing. Right, right. Five minutes into the future. That's where I want to live. <laughs> I, I, I go for 20, personally. Okay. But okay. a little uh, bit cleaner. Uh, zing. Uh, Nazi, 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 Nazi. By the way, you know, if you can say Klingon or Klingon, <laughs> then I say? say they're both perfectly acceptable uh, pronunciations. Yeah, either one's fine. Well, yeah. I mean, neither one is fine, but either one's fine. <laughs> well, right, right. <laughs> Hey, I, I called it out in my uh, story wrap up, uh, but did you, you know, since we watched these shows a few times before we record, mm-hmm. uh, when you got to the moment in the jail cell with creating the laser, did you get up and go make a sandwich and then come back? I didn't. I mean, I, I will <laughs> tell you honestly what I noticed is I can't remember if the measurement was supposed to be 22.7 millimeters or 27.2 millimeters. But the problem is a measurement that small is not going to read well on camera. So he actually yeah. just makes it about an inch. Which, yeah, which I think, and you know, I didn't actually get my. Well, I've got a ruler right here. I guess I could check it, but I, I'm thinking that no way that's going to happen. Also, so let me get this straight: light passing between a gem on the left and a gem on the right is going to make a a, a laser that shoots in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I what, what I actually didn't understand is why not just you know bide for time because the sure. whole reason for the subcutaneous. Um, you know, radio beacon thing is that the Enterprise is going to pass by and beam them out. Right. So why not just make stuff up? Oh, I'll tell you about our plans. It's a long story, though. Do you have one hour and 58 minutes? (laughs) Because you're you're really going to love how the story ends. Yeah. 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 How about how about we sit here and we wait, we get beamed up and we'll be beamed back down with more phasers. That'll that'll help. (laughs) Exactly. Something like that. And we'll take one of you with us just for show. Sure, exactly. Um, John Gill can't talk. He can't form new thoughts, but he can answer questions. I thought that was kind of a weird choice. Well, that's one of the, I mean, yeah, yeah. The Vulcan's ability to play with the mind is a bit like, uh, well, again, I think I've mentioned this before, not about the Vulcan mind, but sort of like the room of requirement. Like whatever we need the Vulcan superpower to be that week, that's what it is. And so I, I really don't have a problem with it because we've seen it enough. I mean, once sure. Spock was able to, you know, control the guy's mind through the wall. Yeah, right. Or right. or when he feels the death of 400 Vulcans in a whole other part of the galaxy. Yeah. Go, okay. It's 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 the thing. It's the easy way out. I'm I'm really more impressed with John Gill um, as a historian. Not only can he totally recreate the Nazi party, he can also guide a um, – well, let's go ahead and call it a civilization. He can also guide a civilization – to uh, guided nuclear spacefaring missile production, as we mentioned earlier. Now, I know yeah, some of that technology yeah. came from Echoes, but I think it was Bones who said that's years, generations yeah. ahead of where they should be. So, mm-hmm. you know, John Gell, multifaceted individual. Not not always the most forward-thinking, I think. Yeah, you know, if he only had a few years to do it, I, I don't think that uh, building a nuclear warhead would have been the first of my priorities. Well, I, he, I pr- probably would have done different things, and then you know, he was a uh, he was a multitasker. He was, he was. And, and by the way, it, it was such a short scene, but I really liked the moment where they they bring Spock out of the uh, the, the broadcast booth and present him to Melicon, and then Darius is sort of 
egging him on like, oh, well, uh, Melikon's an expert on these things. Why don't you tell us about the, uh, the genetic inferiority of this rare prize? And, and Melikon sort of sizes him up and, and he's saying, well, clearly the lowered forehead means that he's, uh, you know, he's not mentally developed and uh, he has a sinister look. And I, and I thought this was, it, it, this was a nice little stab at the whole idea of trying to size people up for purity or superiority or inferiority. Because, of course, from our point of view, the Vulcans are superior in so many ways to humans. So uh, I thought it was a, a fun little scene for them to get in there. Seriously? With all of the technological power and insight that comes with centuries of development and exploration, the best John Gill could come up with is Nazis? So I will begin this segment, John, the way I began the outro of your intro, or your recap, rather. How do you want to do this episode? Um, and, and I think you asked me why I was asking that. Yeah. I mean, we could nitpick over what's wrong historically. Oh, sure. Or we could go ahead and just get to the topics. Well, I, okay, but here's the thing. If we try to nitpick what's wrong historically... Yeah. I, I think you always come back to the idea of saying, well, this is so close, so similar, but it is an alien planet and everything is filtered through John Gill. So whether he purposely changed things or purposely or, or, or uh, unconsciously just got nitpicks right or wrong, I, I think you can always kind of come back to that and justify the things that are wrong. Okay, maybe I apologize. Maybe I misstated uh, my question then. Let me try it a different mm -hmm. way. Uh, Darius grew up. Darius, who we're going to guess is, let, I mean, let's let's say, you know, minimum 18, although I think she's much older than that. But let's yeah, say I think minimum, the, the actress was about 25 at the time. Okay, came, so, so Darius is about 25 years old. She grew up revering John Gill. Mm -hmm. uh, Kirk is out of Starfleet and been serving aboard uh, starships for 13, 14 years at this point. Mm -hmm. He had John Gill as a professor at Starfleet. Is Starfleet on like a 20-year program? <laughs> because there's no way that he could have been here and actually raised up the society that he was raising up and had people grow up, people Darius's age, grow up and respect him. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and still uh, Kirk's path and Gill's paths have crossed. So That's should we, do we just go yeah. ahead and dispense with the whole, I mean, uh, we do the Doctor Who thing and say that, you know, uh, time is wibbly wobbly in this yeah, episode right. because there's no way. There's no, I mean, just there, it doesn't work. And, and Maybe, so, just maybe the Akoshians grow up really fast. Like <laughs> there's a period that they are childlike uh, and then just boom, they're, they're adults. They could have a whole different evolution. Uh, all right, that's fine. Okay, I'm okay with that. I, I, that's I'm, that's I'm what I didn't. Conning. No, that's great because that's what I don't want to spend this episode doing. So there you go. So okay. that's how we're going to do this episode. We're just going to ignore <laughs> the parts that actually don't work as far as you know uh, continuity and what have you. Yeah, I think we have to and get to the get to the party, by which yeah. I of course mean the Nazi party, which is not nearly as fun. So, uh, well, let's talk about that, though. So the, the immediate thing, and we brought it up earlier about Hogan's Heroes and all this stuff, is the idea of doing, you know, light versus serious entertainment about World War II and the very real atrocity of the Nazis. And so I kept kind of thinking, well, where does this episode really fall in that spectrum? Star Trek is a 
serious show about serious issues, but it is also an entertainment show designed to appeal to a wide audience, uh, mm-hmm. kids and adults alike. And I, I think that, you know, a, as weird an idea of Hogan's Heroes is, there was this sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, it, it, there's this tradition of making fun of the things that are difficult to deal with. Um, Ernst Lubitsch did it with uh, uh, To Be or Not To Be. Charlie Chaplin did it with The Great Dictator, although he did it right before we really understood what was going on with Hitler. With, with you know, he, he was making fun of the idea of Hitler, the totalitarian. He wasn't. He said that he would have never made that movie if he had known the true horrors that were then revealed about the death camps. Really? So. That's yeah. interesting because, yeah. I mean, that movie was made the, – The Great Dictator was 1940, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that actually seems to me – I always assumed that he had an idea, you know, what with his being British, um, of, of some of the horrors that were going on. Obviously not the horrors of the death camps, as you say. But, I mean, he, exactly. had, he had a clear idea being uh, from, <laughs> from the UK. I, know, I don't think you're supposed to say the UK is Europe even though it is. Mm-hmm. But don't tell sure. anybody from the UK because they get a little upset. <laughs> I mean, being from Europe, he had a clearer idea of how dangerous Hitler was. And so it, it seemed to me that he was sending out a, you know, I mean, just a serious like point blank message. Hey, there's a lot of bad stuff going on uh, to which we need to pay attention. Well, and, and he was. And, I, and I, I didn't mean to downplay that. But yeah, he was absolutely. And he, he was pointing at obviously directly at Hitler and, and about the the danger of that totalitarian government. But the other stuff that was revealed about what was going on there with the death camps, and he, he said yeah. that he would not have made fun the way that he did. Yeah. Because this was too serious to make fun of. Um, but here we are with Star Trek then in this kind of weird spot where this is not serious, heavy drama. We'll, we'll kind of get to that because I, I feel like the show is not, really about the Nazis. Um, but it's definitely not at the other end of the spectrum where we, where we're making fun of, we're doing like the light version. So it, it is in this strange spot. And I feel like a lot of that has to do with the period in which it was shot. It is like you said, not more than or not much more than 20 years yeah. after the people watching this show were there and had gone through this. Right. You know, so you kind of have to treat this with a, a, a little bit of um, uh, a, a bit of care <laughs> to make sure you're not going down the wrong path here and still make it entertaining. Um, I feel like what we're doing here is this is really more about the game, about Kirk and Spock getting captured and discovered and then getting out and fixing what's wrong. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I mean, the messaging in this is so the messaging in this is so uh, heavy, though. Well, well, no, I yeah, and I I I think I know where you're going with this. Just I don't want to be misconstrued here. The message is there, the and the and certainly we will be able to get into the messages about power and uh, corruption and and all of this stuff. But I think just as a show, if you're just watching the show, the experience of watching the show is about the the adventure. I think the emphasis is there on the adventure. Um I I I disagree. Okay. 
I mean, I think, I think, I think the problem is this message. I mean, this is a fresh wound for a lot of people. Even, mm-hmm. I mean, it's only been 22 years. It's only been 23 years from where you and I sit right now. Um, and this is a very different thing. They're not comparable. But I mean, I, it does not take more than maybe 10 minutes for me to get ridiculously depressed about what happened uh, on September 11th, 2001. Sure. At all. And that was, you know, one day and a much smaller number of people. It was a very different kind of thing. But, I mean, you, you say, well, it's been 23 years. That's a fresh wound for people watching it at that point. Mm-hmm. So I think in that respect, you've got more of the, an emphasis maybe on the swashbuckling. And certainly you do have a bit more level, the levity than I personally mm-hmm. like in my Star Trek episodes. We mentioned in the last segment the whole thing where Spock's like, whoa, gambling, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. And we get, we get uh, and McCoy gets to act drunk. And isn't that right. always fun? You know, I mean, there, there, there's a. It's heavy on the action, or heavy at least on the on the game, as you say, and on the sort of swashbuckling kind of thing. And certainly, they get to knock out a bunch of Nazis, uh, mm-hmm. kind of like kind of like Ewoks knocking out stormtroopers. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just way too easy to knock out this warrior race right. Right. on this planet. Um, but I think you get that emphasis because of how you know how fresh these wounds are. Yeah. Well, and that, that's that's my whole thing. I'm I'm trying to contextualize this, okay. and and it being light versus heavy entertainment about something that is dreadfully serious, um, and then that that's kind of my impression of the production okay. is to say, well, we need to emphasize the the adventure aspect, the the banter between Kirk and Spock, the bit with Bones, all of this stuff, because otherwise we would be doing something that would just be depressing and heavy um and then the the exploration about power and about john gill and about all of this stuff that's where then we kind of get to explore it seriously but we're also doing it from this kind of theoretical standpoint you know here's the real world stuff and then we're going to look at it from this theoretical idea of what what is power what happens to power Etc. You know, I think I'm getting what you're saying. The problem that I'm having is, mm-hmm. I mean, okay, so, so, so why Nazis in this episode? I mean, I know why yeah. Indiana Jones goes up against the Nazis because we're setting in the 1930s, and that's just awesome. I mean, yeah. and the, and then the 1940s later on, and then sadly in the 1950s, and yet there are still Nazis that Indy's fighting, but that's yeah, you know, right. a completely different thing. Are the Nazis just shorthand here? Because it's not like this is not like the great dictator. It is not like the Nazi party is rising again. And so Star Trek is going to say, hey, remember, these guys are bad. Yeah. I mean, was is it what I mean, why Nazis? Why not like so John Gill took part of what they did? I mean, because this is the thing. It's hard to say that it's not about World War Two and it's not about the Nazis because um, the Zeons are Zionists. Yeah. I mean, the guy's yeah. name is Isaac. I'm sorry, Isaac. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, and, and and his brother's name is Abraham. Oh, I'm sorry, Abram. I mean, yeah. it, this is this is very much about that, and yet, oh, not right, right. Well, I, it, I, I'm trying to piece that together. You know, that that's kind of the challenge of of watching this episode is that part of it is shorthand. Part of it is, I think a budget thing as well, where it's very easy to go down to uh, Western costume and get a bunch of <laughs> Nazi uniforms. I mean, seriously, you could do that. Right. You, know, you remember in the eighties, the, the miniseries V. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. 
So in, in V, you have this alien race who are actually lizards in disguise as humans, and they, they come down, and even their symbol looks like a swastika. Yes. And the original miniseries, it kind of changed a bit after that, but the original miniseries really heavily explored this idea of the Holocaust, and um, uh, you even had a Jewish character, an old man uh, who was a Jewish character, who had been through the Holocaust in Germany, and he's the one calling this out to his children and grandchildren, saying, no, this has happened before. It, we have to be careful about this. But that's a piece of science fiction that approaches the idea but makes it into science fiction. This, I, I agree with you, is very strange. Like, why do we make it literally Nazis? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, even with a few changes you could have kept the idea, kept it as metaphor, but not just put it right there in front of you. So there's absolutely no room for interpretation or discovery, unless, which I think is kind of strange. Unless what you need is that, that fresh wound feel. I mean, if you, well, maybe, if you want to go yeah. ahead and get quickly to your message, yeah, because I, I agree with you. And forgive me, I know it sounds like we're getting stuck on this. I agree with you. This is not exactly about the Nazis. And mm -hmm. and certainly we'll get into what you know what it might actually be about. Maybe we should go ahead and do that. Sure. <laughs> well, let's of, talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so in this episode, we get at the very least a double shot of the policy of leave it the heck alone, also known mm -hmm. as the you know the policy of non-interference. Triple shot if you count John Gill saying at the end, "Hey, you know what's an awesome idea? The policy of leave it the heck alone." Yeah. Um, Zeon was uh, trying to civilize the Ecosians. Oh, well, there's your first mistake. <laughs> when they've destroyed <laughs> yeah. us, says. Uh, Isak, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, I'm sure now, uh, they'll attack our planet. They'll use the technology we gave them, and killing is so repugnant to us, well, you know, probably just going to get killed ourselves. Though I think now I could kill. So great. Trying to grow others might better them, or it might lower you. And also meet Al-Qaeda. <laughs> because what it made me think of is, okay, so they tried to raise up these people, not against an enemy, but they tried to raise up these people, and now those people are going to take what they, you know, learn from them and take what they got from them and throw it back in their face. Um, you know, we armed fighters in Afghanistan against the Soviets, and, you know, they win, and we leave, and, oh, we left the weapons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but this takes us back to a private little war, where we really couldn't leave Afghanistan hanging in the wind when the Soviets invaded, because, you know, had they won, then there go the dominoes that we were worried about in, uh, in, in Vietnam, right? Mm -hmm. Then again, um, <laughs> the excursion didn't work so well for the Soviets either. So, you know, bottom line, leave it the heck alone. And that's yeah. kind of like our first, you know, part of that. Bringing it back to this episode, though. Um, so Zan tries to civilize Echos. Uh, that's a non-starter. So here comes John Gill, uh, sent in as a cultural observer. Right. Now, I, I think maybe you send a sociologist, not a historian, if you're going to do that. But Okay. Um, things apparently were so muffed that he couldn't just stand by and watch. He had to do something. So much as his young protege might have done, his young protege, of course, being Kirk. Yeah. Uh, you know, given the proper circumstances, John Gill elects to disregard Starfleet orders and make a cultural concoction uh, of hate and fancy dress. Yeah. Well, and so let's let's talk about John Gill, okay? Yeah. Because that, what you just described that that is the catalyst for the story we don't get the story without just saying that this is what happened and every time i'm confronted with that i, I say but john gill he first of all he's described as brilliant 
<laughs> okay. Right. right. And he's a historian. And uh, Spock, in the very beginning, uh, in his conversation with McCoy, says, oh, yeah, uh, uh, John Gill is great because he looks at history not as a series of dates, but as cause and effect. Right. And all of this stuff means that he's probably the guy who would tell you that Nazi Germany was bad and we don't want to have a repeat of that anywhere, anytime on any planet. <laughs> you would think. You would think. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure out. So we are told, as, as you pointed out in your, um, in your recap, that it's Malacan that, yeah. is, uh, that is actually driving the hate against Zeon. Right. And not uh, John Gill. Not, you know, the Fuhrer. Right. <laughs> so what did he use to motivate them? Hey, you well, guys are crazy. You, this this planet's <laughs> nuts. This this planet's in chaos. So let's put, pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and mm-hmm. forgive the boot reference. I mean, it, I mean, it, it was it was largely hatred of the Jews that that helped uh, Hitler rise to power, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and they say that in there that you know the, this is sort of the the hatred of Zeon is the thing that holds this. That holds the Ecosians together. But we're led <laughs> yeah. to believe that it was Malakon who introduced that part, not John Gill. So right. John Gill starts the Nazi party, but the Nazi party is pretty much just a, what, like a betterment of society party? And it's I, I only know. his I, underling later who says, you know what would really make this, uh, you know what would really drive this motor? Hate. Yeah. Of, of yeah. other. Hate of and, something besides us. And I find it very hard to believe that John Gill's uh, implementation of Nazism stopped at uh, uniforms and Volkswagens, <laughs> you know? And, and yet we're led to believe that it did. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, uh, okay. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I think we needed to talk about that because it, it was very, it's a strange. It's one of those things you have to just sort of swallow about the episode, speaking of, as he did at the beginning, the, the nitpick. I think that is a big, big nitpick is like you, you sit there and try to figure out, well, what did he do and what what did he not learn from his own history class? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, but I, so some of the interesting things here, I think uh, this episode, going back to that original idea of w- where does this fall on the spectrum of heavy or light entertainment? This is a kind of uh, fantasy fulfillment. Um, you know, the, the movie Inglorious Bastards, uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie um, about World War Two, he gets to replay World War II, but with his own version of the outcome and his own set of heroes and his own set of enemies. And I feel like we're, you know, we're kind of doing that here as well. The the good guys, of course, are going to win. And they get to win it in a way where at the very end, these people, the Ecosians, have a change of heart and there's enough of the good element in the Ecosians, um, like Daris being, you know, uh, uh, an infiltrator and uh, Ineg being one of them, that they can go on the air and finish what Gil ended with, uh, you know, finish with his speech saying it's not too late to turn this around and we have to stop the aggression. So um, I I, I like this episode more with that in mind, um, with that fantasy fulfillment aspect of it. But I think one of the big points here, and, and I hope I didn't confuse the issue by saying, you know, this episode isn't specifically about Nazis or about World War II, is that I do think that it is about 
exploring this idea of allowing too much power in any one person or or any one government. Um, you know, several several episodes ago, back when we were talking about Khan and all this stuff, you you Ken Ray kind of made this joke of calling me out for being authoritarian. <laughs> yes, and but it, it's it, oh, I'm sorry, it, did I make a joke? Oh, hey. Oh, hey, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, but but it, it, it's a little bit of a mischaracterization. What I, what I was saying is that I can understand that it is easy for people to be swayed by this promise of order and strength. Spock says it in this episode, the efficiency of Nazi Germany that they keep mentioning is that here is a country that was completely in shambles after World War I, and then they very quickly rose to this huge position of power. And they did it through a number of methods, and the efficiency I would call into question because, well, they did a lot of it through stealing and you know all these other uh, uh, atrocities that they carried out. Um, but power is seductive, and people very frequently will align themselves just with the powerful winning team, whether or not they ideologically fall into place with everything that team espouses. And now what's interesting to me about that is that there is current research investigating this idea that says, uh, well, absolute power may not actually corrupt absolutely. What may be the more important factor for individuals, for lack of a better word, is the, the moral compass. You know, we we live in a world where, unfortunately, a lot of morally corrupt people have exercised the power necessary to gain and maintain power. Um, but the idea here that power itself is the bad thing may, may need to be scrutinized a little bit more. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I will tell you that one thing that I find difficult about mm -hmm. doing this show, and I don't mean this particular episode, but I mean the way we have set up Mission Log, mm -hmm. is we try not to talk about what happened yesterday. In real mm -hmm. life, like, you know, what's been going on this week should, you know, theoretically, we don't want to say it's just like what happened, you know, earlier this month or, or last month. Right. There's something going on right now, though, uh, as we record this, that, that this reminds me of a bit. You're right. We all want security. We all want, you know, to be on the winning team. Um, <laughs> I, I, I sort of wish we were doing more like... Um, the Corbomite maneuver where we're all going to do what we say we're going to do. We're all going to live by the values that we espouse. There's, mm. and how, I mean, how, you know what I'm talking about? I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. How do we, how do we address it? Do yeah. we just go ahead and say, Hey, people listening, you know, 10 years from now, this is what was going on this month. You've got, um, you've got, uh, the guy from the NSA or the contractor from mm -hmm. the NSA, Edward Snowden, basically right. leaving the country, taking a whole bunch of classified documents with them and then throwing them out to the world. Right. And and I don't know where everybody stands on, well, it's a good thing that the government is actually collecting all of the met metadata of all of the phone calls from all of the wireless carriers and just holding on to it for a while, too. They have the ability to listen into conversations that you thought they didn't have the ability to listen into. And yeah. they're actually, you know, uh, tapping the conversations and communications of allies around the world. You can go ahead and argue about whether or not you think that is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it's not who we indicated that we were right and 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 so yeah taking that shortcut isn't 
Yeah, I don't. I, and I can't say right now uh, that that was a bad thing that we did, and thank goodness we're past it. Because you know, first of all, we're right in the middle of it, and second, mm-hmm. not everybody thinks it's a bad thing. And you mm-hmm. know, historically, mm-hmm. I mean, you'd have to go into literally alternate timelines to know whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing that it was happening now. And yet, indeed, when we see you know John Gill did this, he basically took a shortcut to stabilization. Uh, and we say, well, that's terrible. And of course, we've learned not to do that. Well, or. I mean, maybe we haven't. I mean, that's and and so that's definitely the part where this is not just a Nazi episode. I mean, as you and I have said a million times, the great thing about Star Trek is it applies. A good episode of Star Trek applies to today, and yeah. and the the only sad thing about that is you would like to think that the signposts that they put up in 1967 and 68, you know, that we would have you know learned to stay on the road at this right. point. And sadly, even 50 years later, as we record it, or close to 50 years later, as we record it. Uh, we we haven't uh, completely. Um, to that end, I mm-hmm. love Spock's comment that despite all of his words, John Gill isn't saying anything, and, <laughs> yes, and he didn't mean yes. the part where Gill's mouth wasn't moving, which is obvious from the moment. I mean, it's funny right. to me when Kirk says, "Look at his mouth." Well, you can't see his mouth, and his body's yeah. not moving, and his head's not moving. But right. that's not even the part the part that Spock was talking about. That uh, he meant the part where it was just a bunch of strong sounding platitudes rather than a coherent train of thought with the beginning, yes. middle, and end. Um, thinking as I often do in song, I'm reminded of the Talking Heads tune that includes the verses, um, you start a conversation, you can't even finish. You're talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. Um, that's from the song Psycho Killer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I was thinking of as, like, as, as uh, the Fuhrer is sitting up there um, talking a lot, but uh, not, not literally and figuratively uh, not saying anything. I, lo- I loved that moment. Um, it, it said something about crowd psychology because we're seeing what's happening and there's something amusing about all the other people in the audience just rapt applause, just jumping, oh, yeah, you know, clapping at everything. And you're listening to the speech as you and I both did. You go back and listen to it a few times and you go, wow, there, there's just nothing there. <laughs> you know? and, and yet that is definitely a speech you could hear at a political rally today because yes. he doesn't he – ne- because, I mean – as they as 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 we've talked about, John Gill actually never spoke against the Zeons. Right. So there's nothing in there that he you know, where he says hates what's going to make us strong. That's Malakon coming up later right. and saying that. So I mean, yeah, any one of those things that he said, <laughs> you could hear it. You know, Democrat, Republican, Independent, you could definitely hear a lot of those platitudes. You know, at any state fair where any guy running for any um, any you know office. Is, is standing up making a speech or any, you know, fundraiser or political rally too, um, which is a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> World War II planet is a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Also, it is not a nice place to visit. Patterns of Force is one of those strange episodes. Um, We've talked about a few on this show where the iconography kind of outlives the show itself, like Gamesters of Triskelion and a piece of the action. And uh, and this is one of those where if you talk to somebody who's not even really a Star Trek fan, they just have kind of uh, a passing interest in it, and they'll be able to say like, oh yeah, Nazi planet. I remember that episode. Yeah. (laughs) So here we go. We get to revisit it. We get to rewatch it. And we get to really pick it apart. 
So the first order of business is to figure out if this episode holds up just as an episode on its own. What do you think, Ken? Um, I, I almost feel like we need to recuse ourselves from this question. I mean, the problem is <laughs> what we do is analyze an episode of Star Trek. I mean, that's that's what we sit down to do every week is actually, you know, figure out, does this episode work? Mm-hmm. And as I pointed out at the beginning of the last segment, this episode does not work timeline wise. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. so, I mean, and then the idea of this really smart historian doing this incredibly stupid thing, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't work either. If, however, I were new to Star Trek or if I were just a casual Star Trek watcher, I would say, yeah, it holds up. I mean, it's got the set. It's got, you know, I mean, it, it's got the horror. We are, we're more removed now than we were. But, I mean, there's still something about um, brown shirts. You know, mm-hmm. there's still something about the SS. I mean, there's still something about all this that, 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 is, that is scary, that is not good. And so yeah. if we weren't geeks sitting here going, well, wait a minute, that would make Kirk like 50. You know? Right, <laughs> I mean, right, if, if right. We weren't, if we weren't watching it in that way, I would think that this episode would work a lot better. So I would say my guess would be um, for, for the average watcher um, that this episode would hold up. Now, that said, if you are listening to this show, you're not the average watcher. So I don't know actually how it does for most people listening to this episode. And I don't know how it does for you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, but for I would say I would say this episode would I would think that this episode would hold up for the uh, for the average viewer, except for one thing. What's that? Besides Melikon, was there actually a member of the Nazi party? <laughs> because oh, right. like John Gill he was, the, was the leader of the Nazi party, but he wasn't really a Nazi. He just wanted to make the trains run on time. He wasn't yeah. actually looking to, you know, uh, kill anybody. He was just looking to strengthen the society. So, okay, he's, yes, he's the head of the Nazi party, but he's not really a Nazi. Uh, Egan, or... Uh, I- Ineg. Ineg, yeah. sorry. Um, I, I, okay, I, I used the proper letters, at least. Ineg <laughs> right. um, is... Um, not a Nazi, and uh, and neither is Daras, who is like like the 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 big leader or the big heroine rather right. of the Nazi party at this point. Um, they're all the little uh, soldiers and and sheeple and underschafers that are uh, obviously like that minute they're not going to continue with this whole war against Zeon thing. So really, there was just Malakon. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, maybe that shows that the Ecosians are a little, uh, a little kinder and more scrupulous than we thought. They, they, you know, as, as soon as it starts, there's a group of them saying, "Like, can we get this guy out of here, please? And yeah, get back to the way we were." So that's about the only thing that doesn't hold up to me is like the, yeah. but, but it's the same thing we always say: forty-eight minutes and out. I mean, there's only one two-part episode of the original series of Star Trek. This is obviously right. not going to be that. We're not going to come back. I do love the fact, though, that they're like, uh, wow, so the Fuhrer was actually one of you guys. Well, thanks for helping us get rid of the despot. Yeah. You, you may go now. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> There's no like, wow, we're going to take some time to rebuild. We might need your help. We might do this. You know, as Spock's going you know, down the hall, he's like, I can see how they could be good in the Federation someday. It's amazing that you didn't hear one of them in the background going, we're good. You know, because I mean, <laughs> why call. would they? Why would yeah. they want to be a member of the Federation? That's what brought um, Nazis, right? Okay, despite those things, because now I'm just geeking out. Despite those things, I would guess it works. All right, I would see the Ecosians joining the Federation, and then at some point, just saying, "Hey, can can we talk seriously about this <laughs> Prime Directive thing?" No, seriously, can we have a talk about the Prime Directive? You okay? know, we did have leaders on our planet. You might have maybe let, I don't know, one or two of them know. That you were here. 
right <laughs> screwing stuff up now again that wasn't the federation doing that that was just john gill by himself but right right and I kind of put this one into the same category of the two that I just mentioned, uh, Gamesters and A Piece of the Action. To me, it's one of those episodes that kind of shouldn't work, but it does despite itself. Um, the, uh, the, the action is good. The, <clears throat> like I said, the, the sort of game aspect uh, of the episode is very good. There is some meat to chew on here, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment with the message. Um, it, it's just strange that this is one of those that I, I think is kind of easy to dismiss. You just kind of go, oh, there, you know, last week it was a gangster planet, now it's a Nazi planet, have we run out of ideas? Well, they, they were trying to take on something kind of big here, and, and we're stuck, as you said, with the limit of the 48-minute TV format and and a cast of a few instead of a cast of thousands mm-hmm. and and you're kind of also stuck with this idea of okay we're going to take on this heavy thing and we're going to match it visually to uh, something very recent history uh, the, the 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 real world of World War II Nazi Germany and present it as entertainment so this is pretty gutsy stuff all around um and i think they did a good job with it uh the the trouble with the episode like you point out is when you do sort sort of start to pick it apart and it doesn't always hold up there but let's talk about the message though because i think that's what is important here um what what message did you get from this one ken don't be a nazi Mm -hmm. that's a good one is that a great one yeah actually the, the phrase that came to mind was um, and I think I've sort of made this distinction before. You can build a society on mm-hmm. hate. You can't build a civilization yeah. on hate. Um, and taking shortcuts to, uh, taking shortcuts to, uh, to that, taking shortcuts to civilization or to power is often going to lead to some sort of ruin, it seems. I mean, I don't yeah. I, you see this. I, I go back again. I, we talked about this a couple of episodes ago or a few episodes ago. I can't remember in exactly which one. The whole policy of non-interference, what appeals to me about the Prime Directive is that it's a code that they live by, not not just the actual, well, we're just going to leave this alone. I mean, mm-hmm. let's assume, because you said earlier, uh, you're having a hard time making John Gill and his reputation as being brilliant actually come together. Yeah. He didn't go there to screw things up. He didn't go there to get involved. He went there to watch, right? He was there as a right. cultural observer, and, and if we assume that he actually was brilliant, things must have been an incredibly, horribly terrible mess there to yeah. the point that he felt that he had to get involved. Now, you know, maybe start an after school program or maybe <laughs> right. maybe start a school. Don't start a Nazi party. But it's hard to say, well, the policy of non-interference, that's really what you that's that's what we should absolutely live by. Because, I mean, we we let genocides happen in that respect. Heck, World War Two got as far as it did. Because we wanted to stay out of World War II. I mean, the United mm-hmm. States wanted to stay out of World War II. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I was joking when I said don't be a Nazi. But, I mean, obviously, trying to build a society around hate, trying to build a society around fear of the other um, is just not going to is, – is, is, is not a good way to go, which seems like an obvious thing. And yet, <laughs> there, there are plenty of uh, places around this country right now that are being driven largely by that. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so yeah, I, it, sadly that message still has to hold up. I would love to wake up one day and go, 
wow, really that happened? You know, yeah. I would love I would love to wake up 10 years from now and look back to today and be able to say, wow, really that happened 10 years ago? Because, I mean, it's an incredibly important lesson and sadly one that we still seem to be missing. Sure. Um, well, I, I agree with all of that. And I, you know, the obvious message that I wrote down was if we don't learn from history, then we are doomed to repeat it. Um, that's I, that that had to have been fresh on people's minds then it has to be fresh on people's minds now you know we as of recording today we still live in a world where there are many many people alive who were involved in world war 2 either as soldiers or survivors of those camps um or or just people on the home front who were waiting for their family members to come back. Um, so I, I think that aspect of it uh, as living history, history to be learned from is terrific. Uh, there's also the, the piece in there that we started to talk about, about power and corruption, which they do try to kind of hit you over the head with at the end. Um, but I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sold that that is uh sort of a, a fact that can be applied to all situations all the time. Um, certainly power is something that needs to have uh, checks and balances. Um, and we have to make sure that we call it out when power is abused. Uh, that's kind of a nice thing in this episode is that, as you pointed out, we do see so many people who are Akoshians who are not true believers in the Nazi party. And they are looking for ways to circumvent it and end it. Um, so there is something good to be said there about uh, uh, calling out the abuses when they are uh, made apparent. So do those messages hold up? I, I would think that they would. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought I had already said that mine did. So do your messages hold yes. up? Yeah, I, I, Ken, I would say that my messages and your messages hold up. Well, excellent. And, and, and we hope that you think so, too. And if you don't, um, you know, start back at the top of the show and, and figure out how to write to us and tell us, hey, right on, or hey, no way, as people are wont to do. Guess what, John? What's that, Ken? There is another episode of Mission Log coming up next week. Do you know its name? Uh, by any other name? Wow, it's kind of going out at Costello, isn't it? <laughs> Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com and from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Next week, a Starfleet historian sets a planet to rights by resurrecting the Spanish Inquisition. What could possibly go wrong? And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 